the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. The off-season for college football has become almost as busy and newsworthy as the regular season, with the future of the sport being debated in courtrooms and boardrooms across the nation. I'm joined for this episode by Neil Langland, and we are here to discuss the disintegration, or reinvention, of college football as we know it. We take a brief detour into the history of litigation which brought us to the current chaos, from Jeremy Bloom's case against the NCAA 20 years ago, to landmark decisions in the O'Bannon and Alston cases, which laid the groundwork for the tectonic shifts taking place today. So, with the Dartmouth case allowing players to vote on forming a union, and the Tennessee and Virginia lawsuit against the NCAA likely to bring about a stripping of almost all NIL regulations, where is the sport heading in the near and long-term future? Will the Big Ten slash SEC advisory group develop solutions? Or are even the big boy conferences merely wholly owned subsidiaries of ESPN and Fox? And... Most importantly to Buff fans, will Coach Prime have enough time to salvage the CU brand, giving the Buffs a chair to sit in when the music stops? Or is it time for schools like Colorado to accept, and perhaps even embrace, a future in a new mid-tier college football world where the Buffs can once again compete on a level playing field with its competition? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back. And I am joined by downtown, hopefully getting the chance to ski one of these years, Neil Langland. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Stu. Good to see you. And hopefully I'll be back on the slopes here by the time the snow arrives sometime in March. So I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Okay, well, you know, you're always welcome here. You know, we just talked a little bit before off air that we just got a couple more inches yesterday or last night, and I'm going to expect a couple more inches this weekend, but along with it, some uh, some below or close to below zero weather. So can't have everything. No, um, I like it when it's cold. Okay, well, you and our dogs are about the only ones that like it when it's that cold. Well, we're going to wing it without Brad. 
Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the state of the NCAA, name, image, and likeness, antitrust, labor relations, all of that sort of dry stuff, and uh, see if we can make some sense of it and then bring it home and talk about what it all means to the University of Colorado, the dear old buffs, and what uh, we hope it might mean for the short-term and long-term future of the CU Athletic Department. So let's, uh, let me do like two minutes of uh, history here. Uh, I just want to mention three cases. Um, one is probably near and dear to your heart. It's 20 years ago that a skier took on the NCAA. So two of your favorite topics, skiing and Colorado football, hit a Venn diagram in the, guy, the guise of Jeremy Bloom. And he tried to take on the NCAA. And probably the last time the NCAA won a case, of course, Bloom, you know, was able to use his name, image, and likeness so he could use his endorsements for his skiing career. This all might have blown up 20 years ago. But uh, you remember well the, the case of Jeremy Bloom? I do, and with great pain. He was such a good kid, tremendous athlete in both sports. And he was, I think, doing something back then that was very similar to what college athletes were already doing. For example, John Elway was a minor league baseball being baseball player being paid, being paid while also yeah. being a varsity athlete in football. The only slight difference was rather than being paid by the club, Bloom was being paid by equipment manufacturers and so on. Kind of a distinction without a difference, really. Yeah. Six of one, half dozen of the other. But for whatever reason, Jeremy Bloom was unsuccessful and was disqualified from playing on the football field. My The cynic in me thinks that uh, if he'd been a figure skater and also the kicker for Ohio State, that somehow that would have ended up with a different result. But dear old CU and its battles with the NCAA doesn't seem to work out quite as well as it does for all these other players and other schools. Well, you know, um, and what Bloom was trying to do is exactly what has evolved from a Supreme Court decision. Exactly that. Yeah. And that's, in yeah, the NCAA, just, I don't want to go on my rant too early here, but oh my God. Yeah, it was just before his time. So that was 2004. That was 20 years ago. Then 10 years ago, Ed O'Bannon, who was a UCLA basketball player, took on the NCAA. It took him five years. Actually started in 2009, but didn't get decided until 2014. And that's where we got the name, image, and likeness stuff, that the NCAA could not prohibit football, basketball players, other college athletes from profiting or making money off of their name, image, and likeness. So that was our first introduction to NIL. And then five years after that, the 2019 Alston case, which was a West Virginia football player, took on the NCAA. And that's where we got the full cost of attendance, which was really the first time we were actually just starting to pay players. We just called it something different. But it evolved from the name, image, and likeness in 2014 with Ed O'Bannon to the Alston case in 2019 with the full cost of attendance, which kind of set the stage for all that's going on now. 
I guess the first thing, are you surprised that it's all coming together at warp speed at this point? You know, this thing is a runaway train in terms of the speed with which it has adapted. The Supreme Court decided um, the case with Justice Roberts. Anyway, he wrote a decision that was just so wide open, so laissez-faire, so free market as you can get, that it opened up the doors to just about anything. And it precluded the NCAA from doing just about anything to impede anything that that decision envisioned. So it's been wide open. It's just taken a while for people to realize just how wide open it is. Okay. Well, before we talk about the the antitrust stuff, which is really at the heart of all this, if you want to go to law school and get a, become an antitrust lawyer, I guess you can have plenty of employment going after the NCAA as long as the NCAA is going to continue to exist, which might not be all that much longer. I want to talk about the, the Dartmouth case which I think in any other year would have been banner headlines. And again, this was tried with, you know, once before, um, about 10 years ago, Northwestern players tried to unionize and went to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, and tried to get permission to unionize. And that one got shot down. And the distinction then was is that the Northwestern was a private university. It wouldn't be fair for them to unionize and be paid when they're competing against amateurs. And we're going to use air quotes for amateurs of Michigan and Ohio State. But the Dartmouth, the Dartmouth basketball team took on uh, the similar type of an idea and they're in the Ivy League, which is made up of all private schools. So that distinction that you know shot down in the Northwestern case no longer exists. And at least at the initial level, the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, I don't know why I can't speak that acronym without pausing, um, agreed with the players and says, you can go and try and form a union or at least take a vote. So in that little microcosm of that particular case, is that pretty amazing that this has happened and nobody seems to be paying a whole lot of mind to it? Or is this something you think will get shot down once it gets higher up in the labor relations board's, you know, appeals process? Well, um, two comments is that first, the national labor relations board is appointed by and is in the executive branch appointed and so there was probably a more less favorable to union NR, NLRB I can't do it either uh, board in place at that point I think we have a more permissive more encouraging of labor unionization NLRB now than back then so it could be just purely a matter of not so much law, but it just a change in society that is now accepting of this. I, I have been predicting or thinking that certainly players were eventually going to be, have to be paid by the university. It, it's just unavoidable. And I think the NLRB saw that 
and said, well, if these guys are going to be employees, then under the law and the rules of that agency, they should be able to unionize if they wish. So I don't know if that's going to hold up through the appellate process at the federal level. When it gets back to the Supreme Court, I would bet the same set of justices would allow it to happen. Yeah. And there's another USC. There's a case already in the in the works where they're trying to get USC players to be able to be able to unionize. Quoted there's an athletic article quoted a guy that is uh, the founder of an athlete advocacy group advocacy group who filed four USC players, um, the same sort of thing that's going on with Dartmouth. And he said, you know, obviously, definitely bodes well for the USC case. And the USC case, this is him quoted, is even stronger because they actually get scholarships. We expect to win this. So on one front, the NCAA is being battered on the idea that players are going to become employees probably sooner rather than later. On other fronts, now you've got the whole idea that the the House case where they're talking about NIL money, so now we're back to antitrust issues, that talking about not only getting NIL money for current players, but backdating NIL money for players and athletes that should have been gotten money way in you know five six eight years ago when the O'Bannon and Alston cases were coming through so is the the house case I mean they're talking about potentially billions of dollars in penalties for this type of a case so where do you stand on the uh the chances of that happening and where do you stand on that maybe you know does it need to happen or should it happen well, I remember part of O'Bannon, wasn't that partially brought about by video games using the likenesses of players? Yeah, the, the, you know, that's the whole thing. He was playing on the EA Sports uh, video games, and you could tell, you know, who it was. They had his number, UCLA jersey, everything like that, but it didn't have his name on it. He wasn't getting paid for it, but everybody that played the uh, video games knew who they were playing. So, you know, part of whether this will allow them to reach back that far. It'll also include what issues or what types of displays are gonna be part of this. Because if they do the EA Sports thing, that's gonna rope in EA Sports. That's also gonna be a defendant in the case, right? Right. And that I'm not sure that retroactive sort of enforcement is legal or should be legal. I'll defer to you on that, but I would like to see those players get something for it. And I, I, I just don't know how inclusive that will be, but potentially it could bankrupt a lot of schools and sort of drive them out of the athletics business, at least at the division one level. Yeah, I mean, that's really part of the, the conundrum is that you can say, okay, well, why should Shadur Sanders get millions of dollars in endorsements when pick a quarterback like Jalen Hurts, say, for instance, or somebody from a couple of years ago, maybe Marcus Mariota or somebody like that that didn't have the opportunity to benefit from it should be retroactively being paid 
And where's the money going to come from for all that? And the schools certainly don't seem to have it. Conferences don't seem to want to have it. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going out. I think the latest estimate for fiscal year 23, which we've ended last, you know, June 30th, uh, the SEC schools are all getting over $50 million a piece in media money. Uh, the Pac-12 schools are going to get like $36 million, which, of course, is a whole you know, bird of a different feather when you're talking about those discrepancies. But, you know, these schools are making tens of millions of dollars a year just off of media money, and it's not being shared with the players. So the equitable argument certainly can be made that, you know, that should be shared. But if you retroactively apply it, like you say, it's not like they've been storing these dollars you know, in a vault somewhere that these athletic departments have a lot of cash, a lot of them are running deficits. And if they end up with these huge judgments against them, yeah, how are you going to be able to do women's tennis and, you know, men's rowing if you don't have any funds in your coffer to afford those sports? Well, you know, the let me try to answer in two parts. Uh, take the second one first, is Title IX. I'm not sure how that's going to fit in here. If women's sports, if all of the athletes will need to be paid or just the, the sports that generate some revenue, I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's certainly going to be very important in terms of how players are paid, how much they're paid, who gets paid when this retroactive thing goes in. I, that's a tough one, and I, I'm just not sure that it's going to work if we reach back too far and include too many people. I, I think that uh, the first point, in collective bargaining agreements and pro sports leagues, the current membership has often voted to extend additional benefits to retired players that were still living. I don't see how, how outside of a CBA or a very explicit court order that this is going to happen. It may not survive on appeal. It may win at the district court, but it's going to be a tough sell up the appellate ladder, I think. Yeah. And it's, like you said, it's hard to determine. Does a, a, a male golfer get as much as the running back? You know, why should they be, how do you determine how much NIL money they missed out on? You know, because there's no way of really monetizing what you didn't have and just as a side note i mean that's one of the reasons why the dispute between washington state and oregon state the pac-2 versus the pac-10 took so long to uh resolve itself to reach a settlement because you're thinking okay well there's so much money coming in from the ncaa tournament there's so many assets in the pac-12 network there's so many liabilities out there they have to pay Amicable divorce, split the sheets, give them some money for going away. Here's how we're going to divide up the money coming in. We'll all go home. Well, the problem is, is that you know, Oregon State and Washington State want to keep the Pac-12 Power 5 alive, you know, at least for a couple of years until they can try and re reconfigure the conference. They want to stay a Power 5 conference. And the NCAA gives them two years to come up with an 18 conference down the road. But the problem is if they keep that alive, 
And then a couple of years down the road, there's a $2 billion judgment against the, wait for it, the PAC-12. You know, who's going to be left holding the bill? You know, I mean, Washington, Oregon, you know, the Four Corners schools, UCLA, the Bay Area schools are like, we're not part of the PAC-12. That's your problem. You know, we're funding our part of the deal out of the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Big 12. You know, the Pac-12, that's you two guys. You figure out how to pay your fair share of this billion-dollar judgment that's been levied against the five power five conferences. So figuring out how to allocate or figure out how to potentially allocate losses or damages was one of the reasons why it took so long to, you know, guys have these guys split the sheets and agree to disagree on where they're going to go from here. Certainly, you pointed that out in your essay on Sunday, that it was the liability stuff that was the big sticking point, probably, or, or one of the major issues. I have a question about whether the PAC-2 would not simply want to say, PAC-12, 10, 2, gone, no longer an entity, so that if such a suit were to come down the road, there would be no one to stand in the Pac-12 um, to take service and to be a party. Am I dreaming? Well, yeah, because there is there is value in the Pac. You know, being you know, well, you can see it right now in the the discussion about how to divvy up the playoffs. You know, everyone just assumed that with the dissolution, it was supposed to be. You know, the five Power Five conferences would have a their champion would be part of the twelve team playoff, and there would be seven at large first. Okay, well, don't have the Pac-12 anymore, so it should be four and eight. But Washington State and Oregon State still speak for the Pac-12, and any changes have to be unanimous. You know, if you're going to change the college football playoff, it has to be a unanimous vote. So they're saying, well, you know, we really don't want you to just automatically exclude us from the playoffs, even though there's only two of us. Because it's a six million dollar payoff for the school that gets into the playoff, so and of course you make even more money if you advance in the playoffs. So we don't want to walk away from those dollars. So that's where the hangup is that there's still value to the Pac-12 brand as a Power Five conference, and they're trying to figure out a way to that bridge that gap for the next two years until the Mountain West Conference TV contracts and everything run out that they can find a way to do a reverse merger or some sort of a combination where they can have the PAC 12 be a PAC eight going forward and still be considered a power five conference. So there's value in being the PAC 12, but there's also potential liability in being the PAC 12. And that's where the problems are in coming up with how many seats there are at the college football playoff table and how we're going to divvy up, all these potential lawsuits that are coming down the pipe. So not to get too far ahead of the conversation, but the PAC-2 would love to see chaos over the next couple of years with other conferences dissolving, like the ACC, um, so maybe the, the Big 12 you know, reconstructs itself somehow. I mean, that's what they're wishing for, right? They're holding out for the next couple of years that something like that will happen. Right. right. Yeah. And that when the UCLA softball team is spending all of its time playing Rutgers in Maryland, 
Um, I saw an article about how the ACC has these contracts for all their conference championships or, you know, the men's basketball, women's basketball, the football championship. They're all like in Raleigh, you know, and things like that. They're all, they have long-term contracts to have them in North Carolina. So if you get a, you know, the women's basketball team playing for, you know, in the tournament, the conference tournament, they have to travel to North Carolina to do it. So if Stanford or Cal football playing well, you know, they'd be playing in North Carolina. And yeah, it's a, I I can't imagine that UCLA not playing Cal in water polo or not playing Cal in women's softball is going to continue on for very long. There's got to be a breaking point of where common sense kicks in and they say, well, that's that's ridiculous to have all that travel money spent when you've got, you know, legitimate power five schools, power four schools, and hours fly away. You know, that that raises another point, which is I, I think you're right that the schools, the four schools that are going to the Big Ten are going to get uh, smaller shares for quite a period of time. They're going to compare that with the additional expenses that they have. And they're going to have a much tougher row to hoe getting in to the conference championship and into the playoff in the Big Ten than they ever would have had as members of the Pac-12. I mean, I, I don't understand their strategy, actually. Yeah, no, it's, it. you know, logic will have to kick in here at some point, you would think, but in the meantime, we've got the chaos. So let's talk a little bit more about chaos and the challenging of NIL. You got the Tennessee and Virginia going after the NCAA, talking about basically get rid of NIL altogether. And there is a, you know, judge denied a request to remove the NCAA and NIL restrictions while the case is pending, but he also wrote, um, that there is sufficient evidence in the claims, and he put, this is a quote here, analogous to an absolute ban on competitive bidding, which the Supreme Court found to be anti-competitive on its face. So while he didn't grant Tennessee and Virginia an immediate preliminary injunction of victory, he's kind of saying, by the time we get around to deciding this, I'm just going to get rid of NIL. Um, any restrictions that you can put on it, so... Yes, Tennessee continues to violate whatever rules they are. Because anytime anybody from the NCAA tries to enforce the rules, they get sued on antitrust. Unless you're the University of Colorado and you just self-impose penalties for violating NIL restrictions. So NIL, which we're finally, not even finally, we're just barely starting to get used to understanding it, might not even be around very much longer. Right. Well, the the notion that the NCAA was trying to enforce, like many of their rules, and certainly their enforcement actions that have been arbitrary and capricious many times, AK, you might say that the University of Colorado that got punished for feeding a, a walk-on years ago and lost scholarships as a result, it's wide, wide open. The NCAA is going to try to enforce 
enticement and recruiting. It can't be used that way. Well, there's an antitrust violation right there. Sorry, NCAA, you lose. And even with the NCAA there, they have no way to enforce any of this stuff unless there's some kind of bargaining agreement or some other antitrust exemption that will allow them to enforce some of these rules that protect competition. The pro leagues have some protection in that through the CBA. Baseball, I can't remember if they still have it, had a, an antitrust exemption for so long because they pooled money and had a common draft and all that, which would normally be illegal collusion. But college football, college sports has none of that. So yeah. it's wide open. Whoever has the most money can buy the best players, can ignore scholarship limits, you know, all the things that you mentioned in the article. It's going to be, I, I, I don't know how to navigate through it. Yeah. And well, the NCAA abdicated its responsibilities when, what was it, July 1st of 2021, when AIL became a, a thing. They didn't, they didn't have any rules. They just said, well, the states will have their rules. The conferences will have the rules. Schools have their own internal rules. You guys do whatever it is within those, you know, state and conference regulations. And everybody ran off. And that's where we got the collectives. And now the NCAA is trying to bring that stuff back in-house. Yes, it makes sense from the perspective of if you're going to recruit a guy and you're going to pay a guy that you should control what they're getting and how they're getting paid. But that they haven't, you know, the NCAA balked at the opportunity to do that. And now they've got the NILs and collectives and the wild, wild West. So the, the States and such have different uh, laws. Some have none. And, I think the NCAA has been going, um, has been going to Congress, hat in hand, saying, "Please help us. We need some some help to help enforce this stuff." Well, Congress has other things to do, and probably just not very interested in this right now. So let's assume that Tennessee and Virginia lose or don't get everything they want. They're going to appeal, and it comes back to Justice Kavanaugh's desk the author of that NIL decision. And he's going to say, hey, didn't you read my order on this before? <laughs> what is it about that you didn't get? Right? Tennessee, Virginia, everybody else, do as you wish. It's a free market. We're wide open. Go for it. Yeah. And even if the NCAA was able to get some anti trust protection, even if there was collective bargaining, even if you say, okay, you're going to pay so much for quarterback or you have so a salary cap, let's say you have that salary cap. Okay, well, how many schools can afford to have the salary cap? Actually pay X millions of dollars to their team. Second problem, Title IX, you know, if you're paying – the quarterback, $150,000, and you're going to pay the women's golf team $5,000. You're going to have Title IX problems. And then it still doesn't get rid of 
the under the table endorsement issue. So even if you've got a situation where you say, okay, Ohio State, you've got a budget of $20 million that you can buy your team players with, but you can't go over that. Well, fine. Okay. You know, we can't, we ran out of money because we gave so much money to our running backs and our wide receivers that were running short when it comes to defensive linemen. Well, we'll just go outside the building and get them a bunch of NIL deals. And they don't care about how much they're making in terms of salary. So even if you have the antitrust protection, even if you have a salary cap, even if you can figure out how not to get sued by the women's tennis team, you're still not solving the problem because the big boys are still going to find ways to get their players paid more than your players. I agree. I think that a salary cap limited antitrust protection plus NIL is probably going to, well, the same thing. It doesn't solve the problem, as you said, and it still concentrates talent to the wealthiest schools. So there's no protection really for the game because pro sports pool revenue and they do abide by the salary cap, even though Major League Baseball is sort of weak on that with their luxury tax. It's still something to protect competition. There is nothing left in college sports to protect competition. It's going to be a battle of the schools that now make between 175 million on up. I think the current record now for the fiscal year 23 was about 250 million at Ohio State. It's just gonna cement you know, five to 10 schools that are buying for the championship every year. So if that's the kind of football you want, that is where we're headed and you'll be real happy with that. Yeah. Well, and for comparison numbers, uh, CU went over a hundred million for the first time in terms of its budget in fiscal 23. It's like 120 something million of revenue and 120 something million was $90 million loss, but there was a you know first time that CU had over hundred million dollars of revenue, and of course you're talking about Ohio State having two and a half times that much money to to work with. So, at least in theory, the Big Ten and the SEC are taking note of the fact that they are squeezing out. It's one thing to beat Vanderbilt forty-two to seven; it's another thing not to have Vanderbilt at all. And so I think they're beginning to recognize that they are making the pyramid so small at the top that they're not going to have they're not going to have competitive football anymore. And so we've got the new Big Ten SEC advisory group, which I'll quote from their press release: a joint advisory group of university presidents, chancellors, and athletic directors to address the significant challenge challenges facing college athletics and the opportunities for betterment of a student athlete experience. So first of all, what are your thoughts about the Big Ten and the SEC forming a joint advisory group to look into the the future of collegiate athletics? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that it's an advisory thing. I think that ESPN and Fox have wholly owned subsidiaries in the SEC and the Big Ten, respectively. 
and that nothing's going to happen without the consent, approval, and design really by those two networks and a, and a tertiary one for CBS and NBC and Amazon, Apple, whoever. Um, so they're they're going to be free to do whatever they want, break away, form their own thing, forget about the NCAA, and essentially control college football with, say, 40, 50 teams. It's hard to imagine anything happening without ESPN changing. To me, ESPN is the keystone in this next step of the evolution because they've got the ACC tied up until, what is it, 2036? Yeah. So all it takes for the dominoes to start to fall is to ESPN to say, yeah, forget about it. Let's renegotiate. And we don't necessarily need everybody in your conference to come to the table. Fox could say the same thing to the SEC. And we could see something where conferences, as they exist now, form together. Or we could see some distillation and the schools like Wake Forest and Northwestern and so on may go by the wayside. So we would have, you know, an NFL size uh, college football highest division. I mean, is that too far fetched? No, I think that's the direction it's going. My question is, well, first of all, you know, it seems that the breakaway is going to happen. Well, I, it seemed like it wasn't going to happen until the end of the decade when all the non-ACC contracts were expiring, but the point of my my article or my essay this past weekend was that it's spiraling faster than we thought it would. It's it's happening. It's going through a lot faster than any, I think anybody thought it might happen. Where do you end up? Because, you know, the NFL, it's the quote that there are a bunch of Republicans that vote like socialists, you know, that they have the collective, even though they're all, you know, rich powerful men, but they have to vote as a collective. Mm -hmm. What sort of size, because if you have the the 32 or the 24, whatever that say, so the NFL model, they said 30 or 32 teams. You have teams in the NFL that go three and 14. You have teams that go, you know, six and 11 on a regular basis. And yes, they have lots of money. Yes, they have a fan base that doesn't go away. Yes, they have lots of resources, you know, whether it's from television money or marketing or merchandise. But if you narrow it down to just, you know, they boot Vanderbilt, they boot Purdue, they boot Rutgers, they get rid of Wake Forest. Well, yeah, you're going to have Oregon go six and six. You're going to have, Texas be four and eight, you know, do they really want to live in that kind of a world where these teams that are used to playing and being eight and four as a lousy season sacrifice themselves so they can be part of this 32 because for every winner, there's a loser for every two and 10 and two team. There's a two and 10 team. Do they really want to play that way? Does Ole Miss really want to be a three and nine school every year just so they can have SEC money? You raise a good point. And I'm going to offer the counter argument to my earlier point that ESPN and Fox may want that distilled league. They're able to pay these big payouts because they get good ratings. 
because they have good drama to sell on college football and basketball. And if it goes to a league like that where there's some balance and everybody is, you know, six and six at the end of the season, no one's going to want to watch that really is my expectation or so the argument goes. So they have to have, they have to preserve some teams in this super conference that everybody can beat. Uh, the difference between pro sports and college sports though, is that there's revenue sharing in the NFL and baseball and so on. I don't see any opportunity for that in college sports at all. So ESPN is gonna to have to somehow and Fox, excuse me, preserve the attractiveness of college football by matching teams with good records that enhance those records by playing Southeast State Storm Door. <laughs> so, Dental, you, know, you know, the rest of the planet could collectively say, well, you know, we're not going to let we're not going to play you. You know, Oregon State could say we're not going to play Oregon just so we can get a paycheck. You can beat up on us and have a better record. That being said, you know that's not going to happen because it happens now. You know, with FCS schools and lower G5 schools, I mean, the MAC, half of its budget for all their athletic departments is comes out of playing Big Ten schools in September. Right. You know, Sunbelt schools, Half of their athletic, de athletic department budget comes out of playing SEC schools in September. And for some reason, the weekend before Thanksgiving. So if Rick George is in the minor leagues of college football and Nebraska or Texas comes along and says, we'll give you $10 million to play us. And they're making, you know, six or $7 million as a lower tier, you know, monetary contract, you're, you know, they're not going to say no to that. You know, we could think that they would, but they're not going to. So if the super duper elite conference wants to have 32 teams and only play a seven or eight game conference schedule and then farm out the other four wins. So everybody starts their season four and oh, because they're beating up on these smaller schools. Then they can, you know, at least if they're four and four in conference, they're still an eight four team and look more enticing to ESPN and Fox, you can certainly see that kind of thing happening because pay for play, that happens all the time. North Dakota State's coming to, to Boulder for a paycheck. They think they're going to win, and I'm afraid that they, you know, might be you know, more right than we think, but they're coming for a paycheck. You know, that's really the point of this discussion for me is what's in it for me as a CU fan? You know, and I think a lot of, the people that follow CU have been for years, as we have, looking at this issue in our binoculars and through our time machine and going, God, it's not looking too good for CU. We picked the wrong two decades to stop being a good football team. <laughs> yes. And we couldn't have timed it any worse, right? If this was back in the McCartney years or the, and the Barnett years, yeah. we'd be all cotton. But you know, now we're on the margins and it just all depends, I think, on the TV ratings that CU gets in the next four to six years. And what that means is please stay, Coach Prime, please stay, because you 
can boost our ratings. And as you've noted on the website many times, CU had three to five of the top rated games of the entire year uh, when they were playing decent opponents and had a nationwide audience. We've got to capitalize on that. We've never had an opportunity like that before. And as a footnote, the plans for the spring game, perfect. Let's promote us. Let's promote CU. Let's continue this media presence because that is going to raise the discounted present value of keeping CU in the mix for a seat at the table. Right. So that brings to, you know, to the fore. My fear is that there's not going to be enough time, even with Coach Prime, to build up that resume. Because right now, if, you know, if everything split off today, you say, oh, we got the Denver market and we had 10 million people watching the CSU game, which was one of the top games of the season, even though it was a 1030 Eastern time kickoff on a Friday night. But if you're sitting there and you're Fox and ESPN, you're like, well, yeah, they had 40 million people watching their 12 games this past year. The year before, they had 4 million people watching their 12 games. So it wasn't that Colorado got better. It was that Coach Prime was a must-see TV. So unless he can build up a couple of years' worth of credibility and improve the record and sustain that, then the argument's going to be, well, yeah, they're good now, but we have a long memory here, and we know that Colorado can easily fall right back into sub-mediocrity. So I guess that's more like my fear, you know, or the question is, is there going to be enough time? Because I, again, I was operating the assumption that we were going to have till 2028, 2029, 2030 to rebuild the brand. That when the other contracts, the TV contracts started to expire, we would then have five or six year resume saying, yes, we're not only back, you know, we can sustain this. Even if Coach Prime goes away or retires or whatever, we built up the brand again to the point where we deserve a seat at the big boy table. But if it happens in the next one or two years, I don't think there's enough to say that, yeah, that's going to be CU's brand going forward. You know, I think you're right. I'm afraid you're right. And... For the last few years, I've been fretting that there isn't enough time left, even before all the the NIL and the other stuff hit, for CU to rebuild itself into the top 25 program it was back as late as, say, 2003, you know, when the the death spiral began. I don't know how we're going to pull out of that. Prime has us going in the right direction, but... In order to keep that attention, as you say, we need to get better on the field. We need to be consistently a nine and three, 10 and two program with a good bowl record, playing in the CFP a couple times, going deep into it. And I think that along with that, we have to have a clear statement and actual demonstration by action by the CU administration, that we are finally behind our sports programs, our football program especially, and we will do whatever it takes to stay in the big leagues. Absent that, I think you're right. The networks are going to go, 
yeah, yeah, we've heard this before from you. And yeah. then and then you take the money, put out uh, a bad product and don't do anything to fix it, which has been our history over the last 20 years. Exactly. So last question, is there an argument to be made that CU doesn't want to or need to be part of the super elite conferences? I mean, other than the seven years I lived in Boulder, I've lived in Bozeman, home of Montana State University, which is quite content being a power in the FCS. Love their football. They love winning football. They love winning championships. They love competing. They have their rivalries. You know, there was a Division II going back to 76. They won the Division II national championship before it became the 1AA, before it became the FCS. And they know their place. They're not expecting to compete with Texas. They don't want to compete with Texas. You know, they fill out their 20,000-seat stadium. They have their rivalries with the Grizzlies and Weber State and other schools. And that's their lot in life. You know, they send their champion to the NCAA tournament every March. And otherwise, they go about their business. There's going to be a lower level. And we haven't even talked about, you know, what's going to happen to the G5 schools when all this shakes out. But is there a level between super elite, we've got more money than we know what to, how to spend, G5, something in the middle where there's going to be the Colorados, the Washington States, the Northwesterns, the Dukes, the Vanderbilts that say, you know, we're content being in this middle tier and competing at that level? Uh, it is a, that is the question, is will this structure ring out in the fashion that you mentioned? I think it's logical and not unlikely, maybe at least a 50 or 60% chance that that will be the end game here over the next say 15 years. I have to ask and then try to answer this question, which is, why does CU and similarly situated state institutions like college football and men's now and even women's basketball, what does it do for the university? So I guess my answer would be that state funded schools are always short of money. They never have enough to do the things that they would like to do like the private schools do both in terms of education and athletic funding. So they have to attract students and attract faculty and attract alumni support and corporate support and even grants perhaps by having some sort of public relations presence uh, in the sports arena, which then trickles over into academics and into the culture at large. So the decision is they think it's worth it to spend the money on athletics, even if it comes out of general funds? Or are they satisfied just kind of cruising along at that mid-level and then just having good rivalries and going back to Saturday afternoon football? I don't know. Yeah. Well, we can't change our school. <laughs> you know, so we're in it for the long term. We've been in it for the long term. So I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out in the near, mid, and long term. But uh, hopefully this gives some enlightenment to uh, 
CU fans as to where we're at with NIL and antitrust and the options and possibilities for CU in the future. So thanks as always, Neil, appreciate your time and insight. It's always fun to just sit and chat and talk football with you. And we'll uh, next turn to talking about spring football. We'll talk about uh, position groups and assistant coaches and fun things like that. And hopefully we'll put the business side of college football to the side for a few months. Well, you know, it's been fun, but now thinking about all these things, my head hurts. So (laughs) I'm going to go uh, medicate and take a short nap, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you both for listening to the podcast and for being a member of the Buff Nation. I hope you are subscribing to the podcast so you won't miss any of the upcoming episodes. We have partnered with Mile High Sports and are pleased to be part of their podcast network. As always, you can find the See What the Game podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other podcast sites. Or, if you're not a fan of downloading podcasts, all of the episodes can be listened to at the See What the Game website. I will be back in two weeks with Neil and Brad when we'll be taking in and talking about actual football with a look at the CU coaching staff for 2024 and a first pre-spring practice look at the Buff roster on offense. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time when we will again see you at the game. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.